Okay, I'm wearing these glasses because the glare is getting to me. I saw I stare at this thing all the time, so that's why they're there. Paul appears to have been in prison at Rome when he penned the second epistle uh, to Timothy. Whether it was during his first imprisonment or his second is the mystery, and the divide between commentators on when it was is why. There are Everybody has an opinion on it. Uh, we remember that on a visit to Jerusalem and then in the temple, Paul was assaulted by a massive crowd of Jews. They wanted to lynch the guy and they got really angry at him and he addresses them uh, under Roman protection. And, and then a plot was uh, uh, hatched to take his life and uh, it was discovered that a band of uh, Jews were going to kill him. And so a, a, a band of cavalry and foot soldiers uh, from Rome they took him at night to safety to Caesarea. That's in Acts 21, 27 through 33. I'm covering this so that uh, you can just get a background on Paul and where he was and why he was when he probably wrote this. Um, so from this point, uh, and then for two years, Paul is at Caesarea according, uh, from 57 to 59 A.D., and he's kept under guard in Herod's palace there, according to Acts 23. And, and he was there so the politicians, Roman governors and Jewish kings, could try to figure out how to use Paul for political gain amidst themselves. And uh, his imprisonment wasn't about justice. It was about preventing upheaval among the Jews in this uh, province of, of Rome. And so Paul is neither formally charged nor is he released. So for two years, could you imagine that you're taken and you're put somewhere for two years waiting to have a fair trial? Initially, according to Acts 24, five days pass uh, before uh, a group from Jerusalem come and they present charges before Felix, the Roman governor. That was the name of the governor that we first start with in Acts 24, this Felix. And the high priest Ananias, he led this delegation of Jews to come to uh, Caesarea and formally get Paul uh, charged with whatever it was. Ananias had a reputation historically for greed and for gluttony, and he was appointed in 47 AD, according to F.F. F. Bruce, he's a noted uh, biblical historian, Ananias, quote, was one of the most disgraceful profaners of the sacred office of high priest, end quote. He would take the tithes that were intended for the common priests and use them to increase his own wealth. And he was then established as the paragon of greed. Uh, he had been sent to Rome, accused by the governor of Syria for acts of violence in 52 AD, but was acquitted by Emperor Claudius and returned to the high priesthood. So that's the background kind of, of this uh, Ananias, who's leading the contingency from Jerusalem uh, to Caesarea on Paul's charge of being an insurrectionist or against the Roman uh, Empire. Even after Ananias was uh, deposed from office, he used his great wealth to get his way through assassinations and, and other things. And, but because he was pro-Roman, he is put to death by Jewish zealots at the beginning of the Jewish rebellion in Rome in six, uh, against Rome in 66 AD. Now, 66 AD was the time when 
Jerusalem, Israel was rising up and really Jerusalem trying to fight against the Roman Empire. And so the death of their high priest, Ananias, was pivotal in that moment in time. Um, The high priest spokesman, according to Acts, is a Jewish lawyer named Tertullus. And evidently, he's a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was influenced by the Greek uh, Empire and uh, because his name is common with that Greek world. And he's a skilled orator. So he's going to go before Felix. Paul has been taken and he's under Felix's uh, guard. And he is going to um, uh, speak against Paul. The governor, this guy, his name is Antonius Felix, is a procurator of Judea from 52 to 59 AD, and he filled the position that was once held by Pontius Pilate. And that's the last person we have Jesus talking to in the governance over that time. And that was, and he reigned, uh, Pontius Pilate reigned from 26 to 36 AD. Felix was a Roman of common origins. He was elevated to the rank of uh, his office because he happened to be, um, his brother happened to be associated with Emperor Claudius. And as governor, in a time of increased uprisings among the Jews against Rome, Felix became known for ruthlessness. And Roman historian Tacitus says that the man, quote, Antonius Felix, indulging in every kind of barbarity and lust, exercised the power of a king in the spirit of a slave. End quote. So in this trial, the lawyer Tertullus starts off with this flourishing flattery of Felix. And then he lays out the charges. According to Tertullus, Paul is, quote, a troublemaker, a public menace, stirring up riots among the Jews wherever he goes. That charge is really uh, anathematic to the Roman Empire that wants peace. That's Pax Romana means Roman peace or peace at Rome. And it wanted its empire full of peace. And so when there were uprisings, which the Jews were fond of over religious differences and and such, uh, they didn't like it. So while troublemaker sounds overly, you know, kind of general to us, one who causes riots and sedition was a direct threat to Rome. And it would be a serious charge before a Roman procurator uh, if it could be substantiated. And so he was also considered the ringleader of a, the Nazarene sect, meaning he was the leader of Christians. And so that was another charge that was sort of against him. According to Acts twenty four twelve. Paul offers a few nice words of his own when he presents his own case toward Felix and then explains the details, denying that he was arguing with anybody in the temple when the Jews rose against him. I wasn't trying to start a riot. I wasn't arguing. I was just presenting. And they're the ones who went ballistic and uh, that he hadn't been stirring up trouble anywhere. He had just been preaching the truth. So uh, Paul asserts that his accusers can't prove their charge of him being a troublemaker or insurrectionist, but he admits to being, it says this line, a follower of the way. And I really like that, uh, that title. Uh, he doesn't say I'm a Christian. He says I'm a follower of the way. At the same time, he was asserting that he was a conscientious Pharisee. So I am of the Jews. I was a Pharisee. I'm a conscientious Pharisee, but I am truly a follower of the way. And um, so I'm ceremonially clean as a Pharisee to be in the temple 
the Jews uprising against me is unwarranted. And so the charges against him were as well. Felix puts off any decision until he hears from Lysias, uh, a a Jerusalem uh, kind of lawyer, I guess. In Acts 24, 23, uh, it says that Felix ordered the centurion to keep, oh, uh, centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of their needs, of Paul's needs. And so that's the setting. He wasn't in prison in chains like he would be at Rome, but he was held under guard, and, but he did have someone taking care of him. So at that point, he's not in a dungeon. His food was being supplied by Christian friends, according to Acts, that lived in Caesarea. And Felix, who was a corrupt governor, isn't interested in justice, but in what, how Paul can benefit him. So he keeps Paul around, hoping that his friends and these other Christians will come up with a bribe. This is what's suggested by the historians who uh, write about it. Luke notes that Felix is, quote, well acquainted with the way, end quote. And he notes this in Acts. But Felix and his wife, Drusilla is her name, sounds like quite the couple, who is Jewish, enjoy talking with Paul. They would go and they would listen to him. And it was entertaining to them. And Paul uses the opportunity to tell the governor, Felix, about Jesus. Felix sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about the faith of Jesus Christ. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix becomes afraid and says in Acts 24, 24 through 25, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. So Paul was getting a little bit too much into his heart. The, the truth was starting to resonate in a negative way. Felix brought Paul back frequently for discussions over the next two years. Um, in fact, as long as Felix remained governor, he had engagements with him. And Paul's passion for Jesus apparently fascinated him, but Felix never commits to the faith. And in the end, uh, Felix perfectly fits a description that Paul is going to give in this book, 2 Timothy 3.7, of someone who always is learning and never arrives to a knowledge of the truth. And so that's why I told you all that, to show you that it is probably from his experience under the guard of Felix and two years of conversation that he would write such a thing to Timothy in this uh, epistle. So instead of releasing Paul, which would have been more than just, Felix keeps him uh, as, a, as a means to grant a favor to the Jews. And again to Felix, he's a political pawn during the Roman occupation of Judea and it, an interesting fellow to converse with, nothing more. According to Acts 25, verse 1 through 12, Governor Felix is succeeded as procurator in 59 AD by Portius Festus. So it gets confusing because the first guy's name is Felix. The second guy's name is Festus. And according to Josephus, Fester, Fester, <laughs> Festus is a honorable governor. And he succeeds somewhat in getting rid of the Sicarii, and that was uh, those were robbers. I think Sicarii are called robbers in many countries, and and they uh, plunder and they set fires and they murder people. And he was success, successful at getting rid of them, 
Uh, but he's only governor for two years and is then succeeded by a new uh, governor whose name is Albinus. So soon after Festus arrives as governor of Judea, he spends several days in Jerusalem where the Jewish leaders come and they present the charges against Paul. And I mean, they are relentless. We want this guy dead. And so they, they come to this new leader and they want him returned to Jerusalem so that he can be tried there. Luke tells us in Acts 25.3, they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. So another ambush was planned. They're saying, we want Paul to be tried here in, in our own town of Jerusalem. So bring him from Caesarea, Festus. And, but we learn, hey, they wanted to kill him then. So he invites the Jewish, Festus invites the Jewish leaders to Caesarea to present their charges before him officially. And Luke says in Acts 25, 7, that they brought, quote, many serious charges against him which they could not prove. So um, people who are really involved in the political scene, uh, those people who are in favor of Trump uh, might say the same thing that Trump is going through. Many charges are laid against him, but none of them could be proven. And this is what Paul was going through. This is what Jesus went through. This is, this is what uh, they did at that time. So Festus wants to do a favor to the Jews and uh, cement good relationship with them. So he asked Paul if he's willing to go to Jerusalem to face the charge uh, before Festus, not the Sanhedrin, uh, and, uh, it, but in Jerusalem. And Paul's aware of the Jewish plot to kill him, so he refuses to go. And with Festus wanting to go along with the Jews' request, Paul feels he has no choice. Roman justice in Caesarea had been subverted by the Romans' desire to keep the Jews happy and therefore easier to govern. Paul knows that he won't ever find justice there. He's never going to find justice in either case. Whether I'm tried here in Caesarea or I'm tried in Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed one way. I'm going to get an unfair trial in the other. So Paul says in Acts 25, 11, if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Kaiser. Caesar is how we say it. I appeal to Caesar is what he says. All right. And it's really important because that statement sealed Paul's fate. He has now officially invoked his right as a Roman citizen to have his trial before Caesar in Rome. And Festus confesses, uh, doesn't confess, he uh, counsels, he confers with his um, advisors, and he sees no way to get around Paul's rights, but he still wants to please the Jews. And so he officially declares in Acts 15, 12, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. That's a quote in, in Acts 25, 12. But just to say the next official who appears on the scene is King Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice. Now, I know I'm giving you a lot of background, but it's all part of the whole tale. And this Roman procurator is the highest authority in Judea while Paul is still in Caesarea under guard. But he rules through Jewish kings who have been set in place by Rome. And so Agrippa is the eighth and last king of the Herodian dynasty. And it's rumored that he had an incestuous relationship 
with his sister Bernice, who is widow, widowed and lives in his palace. So later she becomes the mistress of Emperor Titus, which created the scandal, uh, uh, which created a big scandal in Rome. So since King Agrippa II has the right to appoint high priests, the, Roman, uh, the Romans would consult him on religious matters. And when the Jewish revolt against the Romans in 69 AD popped up, Agrippa sides with Rome against the Jews, his own people. So that's the background of this guy. So back to Acts chapter 25. Felix has been replaced by a new governor, Festus, who explains to this King Agrippa what has happened when he consults with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Festus says, what can we do? He says this to uh, King Agrippa. They hadn't charged Paul with any real crimes. Instead, Acts 25, 19 says, they had some point of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive, end quote. So this is all backstory. King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister that he's supposedly in an incestuous relationship with, express a desire to hear Paul's defense. So Festus welcomes him or them back to decide what to write in a letter that he will send with the guards when Paul ultimately goes to Rome. Paul addresses King Agrippa directly, acknowledging his acquaintance with Jewish customs and controversies. He identifies him as a Pharisee and mentions his hope of resurrection as one of the many reasons he is being accused, mainly by the Sadducees, uh, uh, accused by the Jewish leaders who were mainly Sadducees. And so then Paul relates his story to King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, how he persecuted Christians and how he converted on the road to Damascus when Christ came to him. And he tells of the bright light and Jesus' words to him and his commission to the Gentiles, which Paul says in Acts 26, 18 was to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was the charge Jesus gave to Paul on the road to Damascus as reiterated by Paul when under guard in Caesarea to Agrippa and Bernice who were invited to hear that by uh, Festus. Paul explains in Acts 26.20 that he was obedient to Jesus in this call that he received on the road, preaching everywhere that people, quote, should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds, end quote. That is something that came straight from his mouth. For this, Paul says, that is the reason the Jews seized me in Jerusalem and have tried to kill me. But he says, God has helped me. Then in Acts 26, 22 through 23, Paul says, So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim his uh, light to his own people and then to the Gentiles, end quote. So, Paul is stirred as he proclaims the good news of the Messiah to the king and governor and the assembled officials. But Festus, a pagan governor from Rome, interrupts Paul and he shouts, according to Acts 26, 24, 
You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, you can, I think you're realizing here that I haven't been citing the King James. I'm citing a common English translation to make the story more relatable because the King James won't depict it as well. And though he uses the gwerk, uh, the gwerk, the Greek word mania, uh, Festus isn't using a psychiatric diagnosis here. Rather, it's an attempt to stop Paul's powerful witness. Paul was in, uh, passionate at this point in his presentation. And Festus could see that he was, he was getting somewhere. And so he interrupts him and he says, you know, you are insane. All your learning is driving you mad, right? He was discrediting him. And Paul, the veteran of many dialogues in Jewish synagogues over the, year, over the years, replies in Acts 26, 26, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner, end quote. In other words, as a Roman Festus, you may not understand Jewish history, but Agrippa and Bernice understand it. And this stuff that I'm talking about was not done in secret in a corner. It was done out in the open. And so he appeals to the Jewish king himself. And we enter at this moment one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament, um, if not the whole Bible. I think the most dramatic scene in the scripture uh, might include David and Goliath. That's pretty dramatic. But the dialogue Jesus has with Pontius Pilate is a pretty uh, dramatic exchange. I think that's primary, that the height, height of exchanges. But this is right up there with it, in my estimation. And so... In this scene, Paul directly questions King Agrippa about his faith. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. That's what he says. And we see that Paul has taken the fact that he is put on trial, but he flips it and he puts the trial actually on Agrippa by asking him this question. Agrippa pushes back, though. He's, he's no pushover. He says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? That's in Acts chapter 26, 28. Paul doesn't miss a beat. And he says, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. And that's Acts 20, 26, 29. It's, it's really dramatic that you have this power play between the two. Notice that King Agrippa uses the word Christian toward Paul, which had become a term to describe believers in Antioch, but it is believed to have been a pejorative and that it, uh, it was not used well, you know. And so um, Peter uses the term, however, in 1 Peter 4.16. The interview's over, this back and forth between Paul and King Agrippa before Festus. And Paul has turned it around, calling both the governor and the king to faith. And rather than continue, they get up and they leave. Uh, but they agree on Paul's legal status. And they say, according to Acts 26, uh, 31 through 32, 
This man is not doing anything that deserves death or punishment. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that sets us up for Paul going to his first imprisonment, going, which would be at Rome. He appealed to Caesar. He would have been set free. So he set sail for Rome under the watch of a centurion named Julius, part of the imperial regiment, who appears to have several soldiers under him on the voyage. And they were in charge of the prisoners that were all going to Rome. Paul's ship sails from Caesarea, and there's a long tale, arduous tale, of the travels uh, to Rome, which I'm not going to describe. But note, in the midst of the storm-tossed sea, when all hope was lost, I mean, everything was, they, they weren't going to make it. An angel appears to Paul and says in Acts 27, 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given, graciously given you lives of all that sail with you. So shipwrecks, the ship wrecks, but all are saved that were on the ship. And uh, there's some wonderful stories then that follow up about being on this island. And the natives are really hospitable. And Paul goes and he heals all their sick. And a viper bites his hand and nothing happens to him. Very miraculous stuff going on as he journeys toward Rome. The rest of the trip is uneventful. After a week's stay with friends, the centurion and Paul's party travel along the Appian Way and uh, towards Rome. Christian believers who heard that he was coming greet Paul. And since he is not a convicted criminal, he isn't housed in a jail when they arrive at Rome, but rather they stay in a house uh, that he has rented, though he is constantly guarded by a soldier. And there is the Christian congregation in Rome that Paul has addressed in his letter to the Romans. But it is apparently mostly a Gentile congregation. So the first thing Paul does when he gets to Rome is reach out to the Jewish community because that's what he always does. The Roman Jews seem genuinely interested in him. Paul assures them that he's a loyal Jew, not a heretic. And he says to them in Acts 28, 20, it's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. I am imprisoned because of the hope of Israel. And that appeals to their sensibilities of at least prophetic utterance that a Messiah was coming or had come. The hope of Israel statement would include both the Messiah would be king uh, of the world and, and would resurrect from the dead. So he invites the, invites the Jews to, say, uh, to hear the whole story. And on the appointed day, a large number come and gather to hear. And in Acts chapter 28, uh, we read, From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Just as he had done in the cities of Syria and Galatia and Macedonia and Greece and Asia, Paul preaches Christ as the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, who has died for the sins of the world and raised from the dead. Acts 28, 24 through 28 summarizes the result of this saying. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. 
They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart is become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. End quote. So Paul's still under house arrest, but within these constraints, he's free to conduct his ministry in person and then write letters. And the book of Acts concludes chapter 28 with, the whole, tier, oh geez, the whole two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. For those two years, he was chained to a Roman guard who would take shifts throughout the day, but he always was chained to one. And as a result, uh, Roman soldiers were converted to the faith. In spite of the inconvenience of being chained to another person, Paul carries on a pretty active ministry while being under a watch with many people coming and going. And this is how the Acts of the Apostles ends. It's with Paul in the heart of the Roman Empire declaring the gospel openly with the full knowledge of the Roman government allowing him to do it. That's how he gets to this first imprisonment where it's wondered, did he write 2 Timothy or, uh, from there, or did he do it from another imprisonment? It is presumed that Paul ultimately did have a hearing, it's presumed, in 62 AD, while in Rome. Early church historian Eusebius, writing about 300 AD, says, After pleading his cause, he is said to have been sent again upon the ministry of preaching. So that's Eusebius who makes us think he got out of jail, his first imprisonment ended, and he was allowed to preach again. Jerome in 392 AD, at the end of his first imprisonment, writes, Paul was dismissed by Nero, and the gospel of Christ might be preached also in the West. If Paul was released in 62 AD and was then executed by Nero in 64 AD, he appears to have had a two-year window where he was able to be free between the two imprisonments. What was Paul doing in those two years? We don't know. Uh, some say he went to Spain. And, uh, and this is because Clement, Bishop of Rome in 88 to 99 AD says, after preaching both in the East and West, Paul gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. That extreme limit of the West that is mentioned there is believed to speak of Spain. And that is why some people think that Paul was able to get that far in his apostolic mission. What are called the pastoral epistles, by the way, that's what we've been studying here in Meet, are the pastoral epistles, which, is, which are Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus on how to be pastors over the church. I don't like the pastoral, teaching the pastoral epistles very much because I don't think they have very much application today, but we're doing it because we're going verse by verse through the canonized text of the New Testament. 
But um, it seems that they were written during Paul's first imprisonment. And we're not sure of Paul's location when he writes 1 Timothy and Titus, but 2 Timothy is certainly written in a prison from Rome, and it's toward the end of his life. So it may have been the second, because the end of his life was going to come when Nero puts him to death. And that would be when he's taken captive again in 64 AD. And speaking of the end of his life, on the night of July 18th to July 19th, 64 AD, a fire begins in a region called the Roman Circus, and it consumes half the city before it's brought under control uh, after six days. And various stories circulate around the cause. Many people, uh, Roman citizens, thought Nero was responsible. Many people thought that because the fire would be put out and the fire would start up again. And, they, and he was in the vicinity of where it would start up. But this is a really horrible fire. And Nero blames the Christians for the fire. And this was the turning point when Nero turned from being just a bad guy to being a really, really bad guy. And a Roman historian Tacitus says, consequently, to get rid of the report that he was setting the fires, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hatred for their abomination called Christians by the populace. So that's when we start to read about Nero lighting Christians on fire and wrapping them in wax and letting them illuminate his gardens, uh, dress in animal skins and eat uh, Christian children uh, with his own mouth and devour them. Uh, Horrible, horrible things. Uh, Tacitus uh, goes on and he says, Christus, speaking of Christ, from whom the name held its its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. So what he's saying there is that it was the Christians' hatred against mankind that they were being executed for, not necessarily lighting the city on fire. This, I think, is a biased approach. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed, end quote. So there's Tacitus's, a non-Christian a Roman historian's view of what Nero was doing to the Christians as a result of blaming them for the fire. 
Apparently, Paul wasn't convicted by accusations of the Jews that brought him to Rome uh, to be tried before Nero on. Uh, but after the terrible fire that consumed much of Rome, anyone who was considered a leader of the Christians would be subject to arrest and to death, whether he was a Roman citizen or not. And that appears to be the result of his second arrest. And uh, we assume that Paul was arrested and put in custody in Rome around 64 or 65 AD. Both Peter and Paul were imprisoned there according to tradition. Paul's final letter is 2 Timothy. This is the last thing that he would write. Hello. And, uh, and that's why it is believed he wrote it uh, in, by most or many scholars in his second imprisonment uh, rather than the first. It's addressed to Timothy again, and who is still leading the church in Ephesus, and Paul seeks to encourage his protege, Timothy, in this pastoral epistle, um, and he writes in the first chapter, verse 8, Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And that line is what makes us believe it was enduring one of the two prison imprisonments, probably the second, because later in verses 11 through 12, Paul knows the reason why he is suffering and is unashamed. And he says, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day, end quote. All the way back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was called by Christ, the Lord told Ananias, go get him. I want you to get him. Ananias is like, I'm afraid to get that guy. He's, he's killing Christians. And uh, go get the blinded soul, the Lord says. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's what the Lord tells Ananias when Paul on the road to Damascus is blinded. He says, go and get him because I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for my name. And here in the first chapter of the second letter to Timothy, Paul reminds the young man that God is faithful even in tough times, saying at verse 10, You know about all my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what he says. If we want to take that literally and apply it to ourselves today, then we should expect that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's in this epistle that Paul will liken uh, believers to being Christian soldiers. We're going to read about that and several other bits of advice that are commonly cited by believers uh, today, including things like uh, being deserted by once loyal friends in the faith, and that at the end of his life, he, like Christ, has been poured out like a drink offering onto a dry ground. The importance of finishing the race well is a theme that he's going to cover in this book, and fighting the good fight, uh, keeping the faith, and the idea that a crown of righteousness is awaiting him. And these are the things the Apostle Paul uh, says that makes this epistle, I think, of a much greater value than the first pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy, 
where he's talking about stuff that really doesn't fit in our day and age any longer. Eusebius records Paul's death and he says, after the second visit to the city, that he finished his life with martyrdom, end quote. Jerome wrote, he then in the 14th year of Nero on the same day with Peter was beheaded at Rome for Christ's sake and was buried in the Ostian way the 27th year of our Lord's passion, end quote. Jerome's dating may be a bit off since Nero reigned from 54 to 68 AD, but the tradition of Paul being beheaded by the order of Nero is pretty sound and pretty well accepted. And so Paul begins his final letter that he will ever write as an apostle to Timothy and um, as a human being. And he starts it off as he typically does all of his letters. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Jesus Christ. And we will pick it up from there. Questions, comments, insights from anybody? Excellent. Let's pray and get out of Dodge. All right. Lord, we uh, thank you for the epistles. We're, the things that we can learn from them, we're thankful for the word that we have to study by the Spirit. We pray that we will not be lawyers, but lovers, and that we'll go out and try to overcome this world with your uh, love and with your patience, your kindness, your goodness, as we engage with others. Uh, we pray that you'll bless those people who are struggling in whatever way it might be, and there's so much of that going on right now. We pray for uh, this nation. We pray for the state. We pray for believers all over the world. And we pray for non-believers and that you will make yourself known in their lives. We pray specifically for Danny, who is really suffering with uh, a closed-off sinus cavity that they're going to have to operate on, but they can't do it for a couple weeks. And so he's in extreme pain. And we just pray for his comfort our brother who isn't with us now, and but is home resting. We pray for anybody else who needs these prayers, who is seeking truth especially. And uh, be with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.